due to the graphic nature of these crimes. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence, suicidal ideation, dismemberment, human remains, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Stephen couldn't remember how he got to the lake, but he was walking. That much he could tell. The snowstorm raged around him, and it was nearly impossible to see where he was going. Plus, the cocktail of booze and prescription drugs played with his mind, turning the shadowy trees into threatening figures in the dark. He had no shoes, no jacket, and it must have been 15 degrees outside. But Stephen didn't care. He lurched through the woods, his frozen legs plunging through a foot of snow. In the soupy mess of his thoughts, he kept coming back to his one clear goal. Make it to the Waukeshans' cabins. Years ago, he and Tara had gone on a trip there. It was beautiful. He could still remember it. The view of Lake Michigan right outside the window. A gorgeous sunset. That time felt so far away. Tara was nothing more than a memory now. But the cabin was the only place Stephen could think of as a place to hide. Stephen didn't know what he would do when he finally reached the cabin. Maybe he would kill himself. His body was already loaded up with drugs. It would be easy. He could just close his eyes, go to sleep, and never wake up. Then everything would be over. He wouldn't have to deal with the mess he left back at home. But the night was so dark and the forest was so deep. Where was he going again? Stephen hardly realized that he had fallen, that he wasn't moving anymore. Slowly, he could feel himself slipping out of consciousness. Maybe this was it, he thought to himself. In the distance, he could hear the waves of Lake Michigan lapping against the shore. As the snow slowly blanketed his face, Stephen closed his eyes. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we introduced Tara Lynn Grant, an ambitious woman who climbed the corporate ladder to the very top, but her husband Stephen grew resentful of his wife's success. This week, we'll follow Stephen Grant's deadly act of retaliation against Tara and the gripping investigation that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Valentine's Day 2007 was shaping up to be a day best spent indoors. Snow had passed through southeastern Michigan overnight, leaving the streets blanketed in white. The Macomb County Sheriff's Department was already alive with activity as people called in car accident after car accident. But in the midst of the morning hubbub, 37-year-old Stephen Grant wove his way to the front desk. He looked exhausted and his face and hands were marked with scratches. In a somber voice, he told the sergeant on duty that he needed to file a missing persons report. His wife of 10 years, 34-year-old Tara Lynn Grant, had disappeared. The sergeant led Stephen to a detective's office. Bill Hughes, a 20-year veteran, would take down the report, then send it to the bureau that handled missing persons cases. Even for a day as hectic as this, missing person cases were standard procedure. Cops like Bill Hughes knew that often there wasn't much that could be done. Maybe the wife ran away with another man. Maybe she didn't want to be found. Either way, MP reports often led to a dead end. But the moment that Stephen Grant walked into the office, Bill sent something off. He clocked the scratches on his face and hands. The detective asked Stephen how long his wife had been missing. Five days, he responded. That surprised Bill. Five days. But he gestured for Stephen to sit and explain what happened. Before getting started, Stephen pulled out a small spiral notebook from his pocket, full of timestamps and hastily scrawled out notes. None of this felt right to the detective, but still, he listened. Stephen spoke frantically, his words tumbling over each other as he kept referring to his notes. But slowly, his perspective of that night began to take shape. According to Stephen, Tara got home around 10.30 p.m. on Friday, February 9th, after flying into Detroit late because of a snowstorm. They'd gotten into a fight. It started when Tara was at the airport and continued while she drove home. When she got to the house, they argued some more. Stephen explained that Tara worked in Puerto Rico during the week. She only got to see her family on the weekends, but this time she had to fly back early on Sunday. Stephen was upset. She already spent so much time away from him and the kids, and now she was cutting her visit short? But Tara wouldn't compromise. She needed to be back at work, and that was that. After more shouting, Tara made a phone call to a limo service that she frequently used to get to and from the airport. She didn't want to stay the night, after all. Tara ran upstairs and threw a bunch of her clothes into a duffel bag. A black car pulled into the driveway, and in a huff, Tara left. Stephen had timestamps for everything. Tara had left at 10.50. The family's au pair, a 19-year-old German woman named Verena, had arrived home 10 minutes after that. Every single detail had been jotted down. After this onslaught of information, Stephen closed his notebook and gazed back at Bill. 
anxious and pleading. The detective, for his part, was stunned. He had interviewed countless people in relation to missing persons cases, but no one was this prepared. Bill wondered if Stephen had been watching one too many cop shows. He tried to remain impartial. After all, this was his first ever meeting with Stephen Grant. But still, the detective could feel himself growing suspicious of how many details Stephen provided. Before I get into Stephen's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Sharing too much information can sometimes be a sign that a person is lying. According to behavioral analyst Dr. Lillian Glass, liars often talk a lot because they are hoping that, with all their talking and seeming openness, others will believe them. And Stephen Grant talked a lot. He had an answer to any question Bill asked, eager to please. But the more he talked, the more frantic his language became. His notebook had helped him give a detailed description of that night. But once Stephen went off book, his answers became more disjointed and strange. Bill could sense the shift. Cautiously, he asked Stephen why he'd waited five days to report Tara missing. Stephen blurted out his answer. Apparently, her boss, Lou Trundle, told him not to. Stephen had called Tara's phone that whole weekend but hadn't been able to reach her. Desperate, he contacted Lou on Monday to see if he had heard anything from her. But Lou warned him not to call the police yet, explaining he wanted to hold a meeting with the other higher-ups before anything happened. Then, Stephen confided that he didn't trust Lou, in fact, he always thought that Lou and Tara were having an affair. Maybe she had run away with him. And if that was true, Stephen said with a snarl, maybe she shouldn't come back home. Without the help of his notes to guide him, Stephen spoke like he was grabbing at any thought that came to him. He admitted to Bill that he knew the husband was always a major suspect and that he wanted to cooperate. He would do anything to help, whatever the police needed. It was a lot to take in. In a measured voice, Bill thanked him for this information and asked if he could send over a few officers to check out the house later that day. Stephen agreed and left the station. Bill was left reeling from the frenzied monologue. Stephen had thrown out so much information and all of it would need to be investigated. He relayed his notes to a colleague, Sergeant Brian Kozlowski, whom everyone called Cause. The two men agreed on a plan of attack. The first step, find out if Tara Lynn Grant ran away like Stephen claimed, or if she disappeared. Cause checked in with Tara's boss. After hearing Stephen's version of events, Lou Trundle was dumbfounded. Tara wasn't supposed to return to Puerto Rico early, and as far as he knew, she had never returned. Lou was also shocked by Stephen's claims that he had warned him not to speak to the police. That conversation never happened. This was strange, but Tara could have just left her whole life behind, 
ready for a fresh start. That wasn't exactly something her boss would know about. Cause followed this lead, calling around to Tara's friends and family to see what they knew. Had Tara told any of them that she was planning for some kind of trip? But no one had heard anything from her since February 9th. Tara's phone and email records sealed Cause's suspicions. There was no activity on any of Tara's devices after February 9th. So, that was it. Tara Lynn Grant hadn't run away with a lover or abandoned her old life to start anew. She was missing. As far as the police knew, Stephen was the last person to see Tara, and if Cause was going to gather any more information about her whereabouts, he figured the best place to start was at the Grant house. A little after 5 p.m., Cause and another officer, Sergeant Pam McLean, pulled into the driveway. The Grant house was nice enough. It was one of many identical homes in a new subdivision near Stony Creek Park. It was the kind of neighborhood that almost felt too new to be homey. The asphalt was too fresh, the paint so white that it almost looked wet. The interior of the Grant home was much the same. It was a perfectly normal house, white carpet, stainless steel appliances, a little slice of suburbia. But Stephen Grant didn't look at home here. From the moment Cousin McLean stepped inside, he was jumpy. He swigged from a beer as he showed the officers around. And once again, he couldn't stop talking. Stephen showed Cause the scratches on his hands and face, even pulling up his pant leg to display a large bruise on his leg. It was all from his work at the machine shop, he explained. Cause nodded, but said nothing. Eventually, Stephen led Cause into the garage, where Tara's car was parked. The officer glanced into the window of the black sedan and noticed a pile of papers in the back seat. To-do lists, things related to Tara's work. It looked important, not the kind of thing she would have left behind. Cause made a note. Back inside, Sergeant McLean chatted with Verena, the au pair. She wasn't home the night Tara disappeared. She only knew what Stephen had told her, that they'd gotten into a fight and Tara took off. But in anxious tones, Verena told McLean that the story just didn't make sense to her. It was very strange that Tara used a limo service when she left. She never did that. Tara always drove herself. Before McLean could ask more, Verena's nerves got the better of her. She stood up and excused herself, saying that she had to meet friends in town. And just then, Cause and Stephen returned to the living room. Perfect timing, McLean thought to herself. She wanted to take a look at the Grant's bedroom anyway. The trio walked up the carpeted stairs, with Stephen leading the way. The room was a mess, with clothes and random objects strewn all over the place. But among the clutter, one thing jumped out to McLean. Sitting on the nightstand was a handgun and a roll of duct tape. Stephen gave a hurried explanation. The gun, the duct tape, both were things he had forgotten to put away. 
McLean gave him a sideways glance. He had to have understood how all of this looked. Before the trio went back downstairs, McLean peeked into Tara's closet, a walk-in packed full of expensive-looking clothes. If Tara had left with a duffel bag, then McLean expected to see a gap in the racks, a clue that she had in fact taken clothes with her. But there was nothing to suggest that. Without a warrant, this visit was only a preliminary search. So after examining the bedroom, the two officers decided that they had seen all they needed to see. They thanked Stephen for his time and saw themselves out. As they climbed back into the police cruiser, Kaz and McLean were quiet. Stephen stood at the front door, waving at them. As they pulled out of the subdivision, the two detectives shared a look. The message was loud and clear. Something was very, very wrong. Coming up, the investigation ramps up and Stephen gets a taste for the limelight. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. On February 15, 2007, Tara Lynn Grant's disappearance was already shrouded in suspicion. Her husband, 37-year-old Stephen, had been cooperative with the police. But the previous night, a tour through the Grant house left the detectives with a bad feeling in the pit of their stomachs. And that creeping sense of unease only grew stronger. Stephen, who had been so open with the police before, was suddenly clamming up. Detective Bill Hughes learned that Stephen had hired a defense attorney to represent him. The lawyer, David Grimm, sent a strongly worded letter to the Macomb police, stating that his client would no longer be speaking directly to any detectives. From that moment on, Grimm would serve as an intermediary. Hiring legal counsel was one thing, but David Grimm was no two-bit defense attorney. His retainer was $10,000 minimum. He was the real deal. Clearly, something about the previous night's visit from the cops had left Stephen rattled. 
but hiring the lawyer wasn't evidence of any wrongdoing, so the detectives kept their heads down and focused on the case. Sergeants Brian Kozlowski and Pam McLean continued following up on leads, checking on Stephen's statement from the previous day. They pulled up Tara's phone records and saw that her last call was to Stephen at 9.47 p.m., well before she got to the house. The last charge on her credit card was also around that time, when she paid for parking at the Detroit airport. No charge to a limousine service. Cause also spoke to the Grants au pair Verena, trying to get a better sense of how time had passed on that night of February 9th. Stephen told police that Tara had arrived at the house around 10.30 p.m., then left in a car at 10.50. Verena returned home maybe 10 minutes after that. But Verena gave Cause a totally different timeline for that night. She had gone out with friends in nearby Rochester Hills. They had drinks when dancing. Then she drove home, arriving at the house around 11.40 p.m. That ballooned the window of opportunity from 20 minutes to over an hour. Koss thought back to his search of the Grant house, the gun and the duct tape on the nightstand. He needed to know what exactly happened between the time Tara got home from the airport and Verena returned from dancing. He wanted to check the house again, this time with a search warrant. But even after a week of investigation, Cause didn't have the evidence to justify a search. He'd caught Stephen in a lie, but that wasn't enough. And until the police found something to suggest that there had been foul play, all they could do was grasp at straws. While the police struggled to come up with anything concrete, Stephen took to the press. His face appeared everywhere, Local TV news stations, CNN, Fox. Stephen sometimes called local reporters in the middle of the night, waking them up to bemoan Tara's disappearance. On TV, he spoke directly to Tara. He begged her to come home, pleading for her to think of their children. With tears in his eyes, Stephen recounted how their kids kept asking when mommy would come home. He was the picture of a concerned husband. But sometimes, Stephen strayed from this narrative, using his time in the spotlight to air his grievances about his marriage. He leaned hard on the idea that Tara was not the perfect mother that the media portrayed. Far from it. Stephen went so far as to claim that he was the perfect mom, not Tara. He was the one who spent time with the kids, who actually cared about them. Tara was never around. She was too preoccupied with her job. Stephen didn't say it outright, but the implication was there. Maybe she cared more about her work than she cared about her children. Stephen was the real parent in the family. The better parent. His comments align well with something called malicious mother syndrome, which was later renamed malicious parent syndrome. Psychologist and lawyer Dr. Ira Turcott identified this behavior and it refers to the way that some parents use their kids as a way to punish their spouse. 
that can mean denying access to the children or otherwise making their partner feel like a bad parent. At its core, malicious parent syndrome is another kind of emotional manipulation where being a parent is a competition with one spouse winning and the other losing. Dr. Turcotte noticed this behavior in the context of divorce proceedings, but it can pop up in other circumstances. Stephen often used his children as a way to guilt Tara about her job, to make her feel like a bad parent. And even on TV, Stephen couldn't help but use his children as a guilt tool. He was the one who was worried, who actually cared about the kids. Tara, in contrast, was unreachable. To the public, Stephen's teary begging might have seemed genuine, but not to the police. Stephen's constant presence on TV was starting to feel like overcompensation. Cause and his fellow detectives began to wonder what, if anything, was hiding behind that facade of concern. And with each passing day, the investigation grew more desperate to find a reason to search the Grant house. On February 28th, the police struck gold. A woman named Sheila Warner called the Macomb County Station. She had been on a walk through Stony Creek Park that morning, picking up trash left behind by careless parkgoers. And she found something strange. It was a Ziploc bag stuffed with latex gloves, smaller plastic bags, and what looked like metal shavings. All of it was stained red. Hunting was popular in the park. The red stains could be animal blood. Maybe the metal shavings were bullet remnants. But Cause and his fellow detectives hoped that this could be something. Stony Creek Park was near the Grant House, and Stephen often went on runs there. If he wanted to toss evidence, this 4,000-acre park was a convenient dumping ground. The next day, a lab tech confirmed what was in the bag. It was human blood. It wasn't a smoking gun, but it was certainly enough to request a search warrant. And that Friday, March 2nd, it was approved. At around 5 p.m. that night, a team of police officers and techs descended on the Grant House. A bunch of news vans were already outside. They didn't even know about the search warrant. They were just hoping to get another soundbite from Stephen. Now, the search was the newest scoop. Stephen, for his part, was unnervingly polite, even joking that he didn't want the police to bust up his ceiling. He handed over his house keys and said that he would take the family dog for a walk while the men did their work inside. Stephen wove his way through the swarm of reporters and photographers, his lab mixed Bentley trotting along beside him. The search was well underway by the time Cause arrived. Inside the house, there was a swarm of evidence techs and officers. As Cause greeted his fellow detectives, a disgruntled lieutenant walked up to him. The officers needed to get out of the tech's way, she explained. This was going to take forever, and they weren't helping. Cause offered to take his team into the garage, where they could be away from the real work and the eyes of the press. As his fellow officers grabbed folding chairs and made themselves comfortable, Cause glanced around the garage. 
He had been in this room on February 15th during that first visit to the house. Was anything different? Nothing looked out of place. But then he spotted something. It was a large Rubbermaid storage container shoved up against the wall with a bunch of other random items. Cause couldn't say why, but something about it seemed off. He couldn't remember if it was there the last time he was at the Grant house. Cause walked up to the container and tugged on the lid. It didn't open. Cause repositioned his hands and with a rush of force, finally popped off the top. Inside was a large black garbage bag. He ripped a hole in it, only to find yet another garbage bag. He tore open bag after bag, wondering if this was some kind of weird prank. But then, finally, he reached the last one. From the small tear he made, Kaz could see that there was something fleshy inside. Maybe a deer carcass. He reached his hand in to grab at the strange object, but his hand came out wet. His fingers were bright red. Blood. In horror, Cause stumbled backward. He cried out, get the Tex. Sitting in the bag was a woman's torso. Her head, arms, and legs had been cut off with exacting precision. This was the work of an electric saw. Stephen Grant worked at a machine shop full of cutting tools used to slice through metal. That would definitely do the trick. Once the terror of this discovery began to wear off, the room erupted into a flurry of action. The evidence techs swarmed into the garage, shooing away the horrified police officers. Cause left the garage and met up with Sergeant Pam McLean in the living room. Two questions plagued their minds. Where was the rest of Tara Lynn Grant's body? And where was Stephen? Cause immediately remembered Stephen's parting offer. He would get out of the way and walk the dog around the neighborhood. In an unbelievable moment of negligence, no one had thought to go with him. Even before the police searched the neighborhood, Cause knew that Stephen was gone. The police had given him more than enough time to flee, and by this point, he could be anywhere. The investigation quickly divided into two groups. One would search for Stephen, and the other would search for Tara Lynn Grant's remains. The search for Tara's body was the more straightforward of the two objectives. The bloody plastic bag had been found in Stony Creek Park. It seemed logical to start there, but there was no sense in trying to hunt for evidence in the dark. So the following morning, a group of over 80 Macomb County police officers closed off the park and began their grim search. A deputy found the first piece laid atop a tree stump. It wasn't until he got closer that he realized what it was, a human thigh. After that, scent tracking dogs guided the search. In a matter of hours, police found body part after body part. Some were squeezed between exposed tree roots, thrown beneath bushes, or shoved into the hollow trunk of a dead tree. In the course of a single day, the police had found the majority of Tara's remains. 
including her severed head. But many pieces were still missing. The men had been at it for hours, and now the sun was setting. The search was called off for the night. The police sent all that they found to the morgue, knowing that a full autopsy might not even be possible without the rest of Tara's body. What the cops really needed was help from Stephen himself. He scattered his wife's remains all over the park, and hopefully he still remembered where they were. But nothing could go forward without his help, and that one final question remained. Where was Stephen Grant, and would the police be able to find him alive? Coming up, the hunt for Stephen Grant concludes, and the case is finally closed. Now, back to the story. While one team of detectives searched for Tara Lynn Grant's remains, another group had been tasked with locating her husband. The search for Stephen Grant had started the night before, shortly after Sergeant Brian Kozlowski and his men discovered Tara's torso. By the time Kaz opened that storage container, Stephen was already on the run. He knew what was going to happen at the house, and he didn't want to wait around to see how long it took the cops to find what he was hiding in the garage. He had to get himself as far away from the house as possible. But where to go? Stephen hadn't planned this far ahead. In a panic, he called a friend, a man named Michael Zanlugo. Feigning a casual tone, he asked Michael for a ride. The two men drove in silence for a while, as Stephen stole anxious glances out the rearview mirror. He asked if he could borrow Michael's truck, a bright yellow pickup, and for whatever reason, Michael agreed. The two men drove to Michael's house, exchanged keys, and Stephen screeched away. The next matter of business was to get rid of the dog and drive as far away as possible. He called his sister, asking if he could leave Bentley at her house. She agreed. At his sister's house, Stephen rummaged through his sister's medicine cabinet, grabbing random medications that he thought might help him relax. Vicodin, Benadryl, sleeping pills, Adderall. Stephen grabbed bottles and shoved them into his coat. He downed a couple Vicodin to set his mind straight. Questions swirled around his mind, where could he go? How long did he even have before the police found him? And then what? For whatever reason, one location popped into Stephen's mind, the Wagashant's cabins, all the way up the western tip of the Lower Peninsula. He and Tara had gone on their first trip there. It was a beautiful, isolated location, right at the edge of Wilderness State Park. He could make it there in about four hours. But as he drove, paranoia mixed with the drugs, making Stephen's driving erratic and meandering. He kept taking the wrong exits, getting off the freeway and back on again. Stephen drove through the night, popping random pills and taking pulls from a bottle of Jack Daniels. Over the course of the night, Stephen made multiple calls. He phoned his sister to tell her that he was going to the cabins, he checked and rechecked his own voicemail, wondering when the police would be done with their search of the house. He called his lawyer, 
telling him he planned to kill himself. By this point, Stephen had dropped his concerned husband act. He was caught, no doubt about it, and he readily confessed to killing Tara over the phone. It would take him until the following afternoon to finally reach Wilderness State Park. By then, a snowstorm was whipping across Lake Michigan, sending snow swirling through the trees. Stephen stared into the woods, his mind a slurry of half-baked thoughts. In a sudden burst of energy, he got out of the truck and sprinted into the forest, leaving his shoes and jacket behind. Stephen's woozy calls to his sister and his lawyer provided the police with a trail of breadcrumbs to his exact location. Macomb police contacted the Emmett County Sheriff's Office to inform them that Stephen Grant was in their jurisdiction and that he was on his way to the Wagashans cabins in Wilderness State Park. It took Emmett County police nearly a day to find Stephen Grant. Detectives fanned out into the woods, the snowstorm raging around them. With this weather, limited visibility, and Stephen's intoxicated state, the police weren't confident that they would find him alive. A little after six in the morning on March 5th, the police spotted a dark shape slumped over next to a tree. It was Stephen, passed out and suffering from severe hypothermia. Even without shoes or a coat, Stephen had managed to make his way over three miles into the park before collapsing. Things moved very quickly after that. Stephen was airlifted to Northern Michigan Hospital for treatment, where he recovered surprisingly fast. In a few hours, he was up and chatting, back to his regular self. His concerned husband act was completely gone now. He didn't even seem remorseful. Stephen openly talked about killing Tara as if it was nothing more than a silly mistake, something that just happened in the heat of the moment. Even in the midst of being arrested, Stephen was eager to help the investigation. He was more than happy to draw a map of Stony Creek Park, outlining where the rest of Tara's body parts were. Maybe, Stephen offered, this could help him strike a deal for a shorter sentence. But there was no chance of that. Stephen was a murderer. Being helpful here didn't change that. Stephen's confession was perhaps the most bizarre element of all of this. Sergeant Brian Kozlowski was desperate to speak to him, to finally hear what really happened the night of February 9th. But even now, Staring down a long prison sentence, Stephen couldn't help but make himself look like a victim. Some of his statement remained the same. He and Tara had fought that night. Tara had been rude over the phone, and Stephen was growing more and more bitter about how little time she spent with him and their kids. When she finally got home, he and Tara continued fighting, Stephen still claimed that Tara wanted to go back to Puerto Rico that Sunday. It made Stephen furious. She was spending too much time at work with Lou, her boss. Stephen accused Tara of sleeping with Lou, and Tara slapped him. Stephen hit her back. Tara stumbled, hitting her head. In a daze, Tara yelled that she was leaving him 
and that she would ruin his life. This was the final straw. Stephen lunged forward, locking his hands around her throat. In his own recollection of the event, he just wanted to shut her up once and for all. So he squeezed and squeezed until she was dead. A later autopsy of Tara's remains showed that she was not attacked head-on like Stephen claimed. Police later suspected that Stephen attacked Tara from behind without her awareness. This, coupled with the unproven claim about Tara's plan to return to San Juan early, makes Stephen's statement dubious at best. It is possible, though, that Stephen actually believed these memories to be true. Cognitive neuroscientist Martin Chadwick explained to Scientific American that our memory is much more strongly tied to emotion than it is to real events. Rather than document the actual event, we build an overall concept that you store in memory. So, Stephen may have genuinely remembered the night of February 9th in this way, even if it wasn't true. His bitterness tied to his rage at Tara almost certainly colored his recollection of that evening. But some details were painfully accurate. Stephen described with unsettling nonchalance how he dismembered Tara's body, scattering her remains across Stony Creek Park. But after he involved the police, Stephen grew paranoid. In a mad rush, he returned to the park retrieving the largest piece of Tara's body he could find, her torso. It remained hidden in his house until that fateful search in the garage. As far as we know, Stephen never spoke about any of this with a sense of remorse. If anything, his nonchalance left cause seriously rattled. After all, that grandstanding to the press, those crocodile tears, Stephen had settled into his role as wife killer with shocking ease. Even after being found guilty of second-degree murder, Stephen Grant didn't seem all that phased. If anything, he was thrilled. Second-degree is a less serious charge than first-degree. Defendants receive 50 to 80 years behind bars with the possibility of parole. In the years since his conviction, Stephen Grant tried and failed to appeal his case. He continued to enjoy his relative notoriety, regularly talking to his sister during visits about the idea of a book deal. Maybe, he mused, it could even get adapted into a movie. Stephen was practically giddy at the thought of it. But while Stephen continued to play act as a celebrity, the remaining members of his family have tried to heal from the wounds he left behind. His two children, Lindsay and Ian, were eventually adopted by Tara's sister, Alicia, and moved to Ohio. They've since grown up and now help run a yearly event in Macomb County called Tara's Walk, which helps raise money for domestic abuse resource centers. The event gathers a good crowd, including people who likely remember well the terror that gripped the community in February 2007. Stephen Grant doesn't appear interested in the real legacy of misery that he left behind. That's not the story he chooses to remember, but his children have done the work that he refuses to do himself. They remember Tara. 
and it is her legacy that continues on today. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Tara Lynn Grant, amongst the many sources we used, we found Blood in the Snow by Tom Henderson extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.